Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here on the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic, and people call me Alexa. It's very confusing. <laughs> You're not going to message people's phones right now? I'm, I'm getting a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> just... Ale- uh, Alexa, purchase Jingle All the Way DVD. <laughs> You monster! <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is We Got Mail. Uh, you can email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You can talk to us about our various shows. You can ask us questions. You can try to get us to do your homework for you. We've gotten pretty good at figuring out which ones those are. Uh, and uh, Or anything else, really. Mm. We are open books. We are ready to talk about any topic, uh, pretty much, that you can come up with. Uh, before we get going, though, I just want to draw attention to our Patreon page uh, at the top of the hour. Uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh, because we've made a few changes uh, including we have a new uh, reward where we'll make a personalized podcast for you that's at our top tier uh, rewards over mm-hmm. there at the Patreon we also have a new goal uh, in which if we start making uh, uh, enough money mm-hmm. that we can do this podcast and very little else uh, not only will we finally be able to upgrade our sound equipment, which I've been dreaming of for 10 years, uh, but we'll also start doing a new podcast in which we review every single episode of Batman the Animated Series. One podcast per episode. We'll also do the spinoffs and the crossovers. And that's in addition to everything else we're doing. Yes. We're not, we're not dropping any of that stuff. We're, we're just going to tack on Batman. Yep. It's a huge undertaking, yeah. and we would happily undertake it with you if we could afford to spend the time to do that. So, uh, anyway, if you're thinking of subscribing, you, you might want to. And if not, that's cool. If we, never hit the, if we never hit that goal, we never hit that goal. But we have to set a goal, don't we? Don't we all have to have something to strive for? I've noticed I've been struggling with that as an adult. Yeah, like, what, do I, what am I pushing towards? What do I, what do I want next? And, yeah, and in, I don't have a lot. In high school, <laughs> I only got through about a quarter of eating that bicycle. <laughs> saw, it on, saw it on the TV program, That's Incredible Once. And this is a true story. I actually on the, ate a bicycle. A guy, like, they cut it up into little tiny pieces and he swallowed it bit by bit. Was it, it was a metal bicycle. It was just yeah, it was a bicycle, just an average Schwinn. Is and he alive? Yeah, well, he, it was small enough bits that he could sort of pass them through his system. Why would he do that? Just to get an entry in the Guinness Book, I suppose. Why is until, there? A, why is there an entry somebody, in the Guinness Book for that? Now here's the problem: you you went to the trouble of like having a bicycle cut up into bite-sized pieces, and you eat the whole thing. Yeah, and, and you know, a great physical risk to yourself, I, I imagine. Yeah, that can't be healthy. How much of an idiot do you feel like when somebody does that with two bicycles? Because that, that's a pretty weird, impressive feat. And then some jerk just to show you up. Did you don't even better. have to do Nobody two. Even ta- you even, can just do one and a half even, bicycles. You don't have to go the full two. May, maybe in the competitive bike eating world, yeah. your name is somehow whispered from time to time. Yeah. But, but, ordinarily, but then that other guy just ate a bicycle and a tricycle, and yeah. all of a sudden... You're just nothing. You're nothing right. anymore. Wow. That's depressing. It's like, who, who came in third place in the squirting milk from your eyes contest? We need to move on. 
That's a real thing. Look that up. We are not looking that up. We are moving on and we're reading a letter. Once okay. again, that email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We will happily read your letters. We read as many as we can get to, so let's get going. Here's a letter from Nanina. Hello, Nanina. Hi. And this is a letter about Lynn Shelton. Oh, great. Uh, on, on our recent, uh, most recent episode of Critically Acclaimed, we uh, had an obituary for Lynn Shelton, and it was more of an apology, really, because mm. we understand that she's important, but neither of us are familiar at all with her work. Well, a little bit. I've seen uh, like her TV work, but... But I actually missed her movies, and usually we, we we try to be better about that. But this is just a situation in which we were very depressed to admit mm, so. that we didn't have much to say. So we asked people to write in, and if they had something they wanted to say about Lynn Shelton, we mm. would happily give them a form here, and we've got oh, mail. I'm glad well, someone wrote in. Uh, Nanina says, uh, "I'm almost jealous of you guys that you haven't seen any of Lynn Shelton's work." because you have such a great treat ahead of you discovering her. Aww. I forgot why I decided to get Hump Day back in 2009 when Netflix was still mailing discs. The plot description, two straight friends make a drunken pledge to film themselves having sex for an art porn festival. It doesn't actually sound that promising, but this was Lynn Shelton's genius, teasing out the normal human reactions and interactions in off-kilter situations. She is often lumped into the mumblecore movement because of the heavily improvisational nature of her work, but I think part of what worked so well is that her films have a delightful screwball quality at the center of their realism. My favorite, Your Sister's Sister, a love triangle between a grieving man, his best friend, and her lesbian sister, sounds like a modern screwball comedy, but instead of spiraling out of control, it is reeled back in with restraint and naturalism. The risk with mumblecore and improvised dialogue is that it can feel aimless. Uh, I've seen that, that happen many times. That's the point of mumblecore, actually. Well, it's supposed to feel point, good. But... I mean, it's got to be. It's uh, the, the Aimless is not... I, here's the deal. Uh, uh, natural? Mm. Maybe? I think aimless isn't necessarily something most people should strive for, because aimless right. makes you want to go into another room. <laughs> aimless makes you want to do something with people who have aim. Uh, Lynn Shelton and her actors create full-blooded, interesting characters, people that you want to spend an hour and a half eavesdropping on, but Shelton never ignored the narrative part of the equation. She gave her her movies twists and turns, making her films more than just engaging character studies. Shelton excelled at using these premises to explore the psychological, uh, the psychological underpins, excuse me, of friendship, sexuality, and rivalry, always from a generous and compassionate viewpoint. She obviously loved her characters, flaws, foibles, and all, and wanted what was best for them. You worry for the characters, but ultimately your films are incredibly open-hearted, and the world doesn't, and the worst doesn't come. Uh, even her least uh, comedic outside-in about a man reintegrating into society after his relief from pr- release from prison, she protects her characters, never in a cheap or contrived way, but hopefully and humanely. Mm-hmm. She showed the best of human nature without sanitizing it or ignoring the darker side. I always looked forward to a new Lynn Shelton film. She was a director absolutely at the height of her powers, and it's heartbreaking that there won't be another one. All the best, Nanina. Nanina, thank you so, so much. That was really beautiful mm-hmm. and incredibly well-written. Um, and I hope you're a critic because clearly you can speak really wonderfully about someone's work and make me really want to see them. Mm-hmm. So um, I also really, really like uh, the way Nanina uh, began their mm-hmm. their letter, which is, uh, I'm excited that you get to experience these films for the first time. I think that's an attitude mm-hmm. that we can sometimes forget about in our passion for cinema. When someone yeah, well, hasn't seen something, it's like, oh, no, you monster. It's like, no, well, no, no, it's, it's great. You get to find yeah. these things. You get to experience yeah. I There are movies I wish I could go back to and visit for the first time. Well, that that's sort of a, that's a young man's game. I, I, I can't, I don't have the energy to 
feel outrage over the fact that somebody hasn't seen a movie. Also, yeah. I'm an old man now. I, you know, there's, yeah. there's, I'm running into people like teenagers who haven't seen things that I thought were, were just sort of taken for granted now. Hey, they didn't grow like, up. I, didn't I, come I, out I know, when they were five. Yeah, I've, you know? I've, I've never seen Jurassic Park, and I can't say what you've never. Oh wait, yeah, you were, you weren't born yet. It was, it was, it was a decade before you were yeah, born. You're twenty. Of yeah. It's like yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's weird to you, think you about how that happens. That, yeah. It's weird to think about how that happens and how like mm. the movies you grew up with people have been born yet. But that's getting mm-hmm. off topic. That was a really, really beautiful eulogy for you, for Lynn Shelton. And um, yeah, I will definitely mm. seek out her work. And I hope that the rest of our listeners do mm. if they're unfamiliar with it. Thank you. Uh, here's a letter from Brian. It's correcting you. Um, no. We, we, were, we were talking about Scoob. Scoob. And you were talking about how uh, you're just Hanna-Barbera just was a dump truck full of manure. And... Uh, <laughs> I think I, I think I think you're sugarcoating it, but okay. I mean, maybe so. Okay, <laughs> we're not fans of the typical Hanna Barbera album. No. I'm not saying they did everything you, uh, bad, but we weren't fans. And you said that you were a big fan of Mighty Man and Yuck. Someone's already brought this up on Twitter, but please let's address it here on the uh, show. It's a very short letter. It just says not Hanna Barbera. It's Ruby Spears. That's correct. <laughs> uh, so here's the deal. Here's the deal with Hanna Barbera. Mm. Uh, Hanna Barbera worked uh, very closely with uh, animators and creators named Ruby and Spears. Uh, and Hanna-Barbera dominated the Saturday morning cartoon landscape so much mm. that Ruby and Spears eventually split off and did their own stuff, which was mostly very similar to Hanna-Barbera. I, if, if anything, well, I actually Spears, noticed I that... Think, had, I, feel, I feel like they put... stuff, maybe? They, yeah. Some of their stuff was really, really weird. I think sometimes Ruby Spears shows, to me, seem to have better animation, hmm. but um, that might be just rose-colored glasses looking back and i haven't done a one-to-one comparison in a while but yeah i was talking about the saturday morning cartoon show which aired right next to all the hanna-barbera crap Mm. uh called mighty man and yuck which i somewhat preferred to stuff like blue falcon and dynamut because mighty man and yuck was really fucking weird if you Mm. missed our critically acclaimed review scoob would you have to say that way because there's an exclamation point in it if you missed our review of scoob uh, Mighty Man and Yuck was a show about a guy who could turn into a superpowered superhero, but whenever he turned into the superpowered superhero, he grew like six feet tall. No, I'm sorry, six mm. inches tall. Yeah, he shrank. could like fit in the palm of your hand. Mm. And his sidekick was a dog named Yuck, who was the ugliest dog in the world. He wore a doghouse over his head because he was a very large dog. Mm. He wore a doghouse over his head, and you can only see his eyes, kind of like Orko and He Man. Mm. And uh, whenever he took off his doghouse, he was so ugly, like, he could make a wall fall over. <laughs> and I always thought to myself, <clears throat> I bet he's not that bad. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to be the one person who loved Yuck for who Yuck was. Like, I just feel like Yuck... Mm. What could it be? Is it, like, Hellraiser Hellbound in there? Like... Is he like this horrific Clive Barker monster or <laughs> or is it just like or is it like some stupid joke and he's like Don Knotts and they're just making fun of Don Knotts even though Don Knotts uh, isn't that unattractive. A little bit about yeah, uh, Ruby and Spears worked for Hanna-Barbera and yeah. they, they wrote for Hanna-Barbera and then they broke off and did their own yeah. uh, series they did. And yeah, they're 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 no shining examples of anything here because no. uh, they did things like fan, Fang Face. They did the uh, Plastic Man cartoon show, which I I remember enjoying okay. as a child. I remember thinking that, uh, but that probably hasn't held up. They did Thundar the Barbarian. Uh, I like that and as then a they, kid. They did do the '80s Alvin and the Chipmunks, which is. Mm. Uh, Significant. Alvin. Can we call it significant and leave it? Alvin, at that? Alvin stepping on a picture of a human face forever. Um, 
They did Rubik the Amazing Cube. They did the Mr. T cartoon. They were one of like the yeah. the main purveyors. They were along just with, like, churning out along stuff. With, like Lou Scheimer of all of like those those commer- those half hour cartoon commercials. Yeah. Well, anyway, we, we, we pl- love we love reminiscing about this shit because it's the shit we grew up with. That's true. Uh, uh, in any case, justice for Ruby Spears has been achieved. Mm. We apologize to Ruby and Spears and their kin and their many co-workers. Uh, we apologize for inaccurately crediting Anna Barbera for Mighty Man and Yuck. Yeah, Ruby, Ruby, Ruby and Spears. Respect. You, you respect for not being Hanna Barbera. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. These cartoons are so bad. Thank you for the correction. I always appreciate corrections. We right. want to be as good as we can. Um, here's a letter from Ori. Hello, Ori. Uh, hello, Will and Wit. Uh, when a movie is well made and you enjoy it, that is usually an incentive to watch it again after a while. Sometimes when you go back and watch a film you enjoyed, you realize you don't enjoy it anymore and that it wasn't good at all. You know, especially yeah. if a lot of time passes. Yeah. Um, but a movie you originally didn't like, uh, you don't have a reason to rewatch, and you can miss a film you can reevaluate. How do you find yourself rewatching a movie you didn't like at first, and which one did you turn around on from disliking to liking? We uh, get this question a lot. Uh, this is a question a lot of people are really interested in from film critics. I think it's because film critics tend to be very strong and forceful with their opinions, hmm. and it's always interesting to see when uh, that opinion changes over time. And I yeah. think every critic who works long enough will have their opinion on something softened or hardened over time. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think now. Like, what's something that I didn't care for? I, I, I've, I've got a few go-to examples, but I'm trying to think mm. beyond them. I've talked so well, many was... times about how I didn't get Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist when I was a yeah. kid. But I want well, to go in a different direction. I want to try to think of something else. Yeah. Ah, oh, golly. There, there's... Well, golly, there's just so many. Um, <laughs> there's so many things you were wrong about. Well, uh, when when it, uh, these days, you know, in the age of uh, Twitter and you know the the daily think piece and the daily listicle yeah. and film Twitter and all the rest, uh, there's usually going to be somebody out there who's always had a very positive opinion about a very unpopular film. Yeah, and uh, often they will come out uh, to ask people to reevaluate it. And if you read the think piece and they're a convincing enough author or critic then maybe you'll give it a chance. Or sometimes something will come along and you'll realize that popular opinion isn't shared. Like, you went to see something, you hated it, you never really heard anybody else talk about something. And now so all of a sudden it's assume- got a cult. Yeah, and then you, so you just assumed that it was either forgotten or nobody cared about it, or people shared your opinion and people yeah. just sort of dismissed it. And yeah, 20 years passed and all of a sudden, wow, people really liked Jumanji, huh? Yeah. It's like, uh, where did Ju- that come from? In my generation, I'm sorry, I was, I mean, I was in high school, but like Jumanji just kind of came and went. People liked it, people rented it, it made money, and then nobody talked about it for 20 years, and now it's a classic. What happened? Yeah, what happened in that time? Like, when did that happen? The, uh, evidently, we weren't, you know, 10 yeah. year olds with cable when yeah. Jumanji was in heavy rotation. There's tons so. of stuff we watched just because we were 10 year olds with cable. It mm-hmm. makes sense that that would happen for new generations. I thought of one. I thought of one that I had an interesting experience being neutral on it mm-hmm. and then hating it and then realizing I loved it. Oh, yeah. And that's uh, James Cameron's Titanic. Oh, there you go. I remember when James Cameron's Titanic came out and Titanic became the biggest movie of all time. So it's sometimes easy to forget that before it came out, it was a huge question mark. It was insanely expensive for mm-hmm. the time. Nowadays, it's not the most expensive movie ever made, but for the time it was huge. 
Well, it set a precedent. Other studios started making big movies yeah. like that, and indeed, and indeed, like one of one of the studios like freaked out and like, oh, we're spending too much money. We better share the the we better share this with another studio. And mm. they're like, oh god, we shared all that billions. What are we doing? <laughs> um, but uh, it was hugely expensive. It was a passion project for James Cameron, and James. But James Cameron was known for action and sci-fi. This was an, a historical romance. It was totally outside his wheelhouse. Would people follow him? And I remember seeing Titanic opening weekend, mm. not so much because I was super excited to see Titanic, but because I was worried James Cameron would never work again and I wanted to throw him a bone. <laughs> it's funny now. Mm. And indeed, you got to remember the opening weekend wasn't huge. Like it, it did was, okay. It was but, a, a December release. It was a Christmas release. And uh, yeah, it was just before Christmas, remember? Sir, yeah, but, uh, but like it, it, December 19th. Yeah. I remember that because Avatar was released on the exact same day. Oh, I didn't realize that. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it was not the biggest opening weekend. It didn't. It's not one of these movies that made like three hundred million dollars its opening weekend. It made like thirty or forty, mm. and then which is, which which is big, good, big, but you know not for the not mo- enormous. Every I remember like reading like the L.A. Times like the, mm. the weekend. Uh, sorry, the Monday after that, and they were talking about how, uh, yeah, will Titanic make its money back? Mm. Because mm. this is not a good opening weekend for a movie this size. It proceeded to play for half a year. Yeah, <laughs> it proceeded to be number one at the box office. Like, it didn't really, like, rise, but it stayed, it plateaued and stayed a comfortable number one for, mm. like, three and a half months. Uh, the f- do you, and you remember the film to knock it out of place? Lost in Space. Lost in Space. I remember that. I remember when everyone thought the movie to knock it out would be Man in the Iron Mask, which also starred DiCaprio. <laughs> and, it, and it could not, which is really funny. Um, but anyway, so I remember seeing it opening weekend and thinking it was okay. Mm. I, remember th- I remember literally thinking as I left the theater... And I was impressed by the scale, and there were things I liked mm. about it. I thought maybe it was a little long oh, and too saccharine, and the dialogue was Lost embarrassing. In, Lost in Space wasn't released until early April. Yeah, it was huge. It was number one for months. That, you just don't have that anymore. Yeah. But um, I left the theater thinking, that's okay, but you know, in the long, in the long run, this will be a footnote in James Cameron's career. Mm. I was an idiot. <laughs> uh, and then what happened was it, it became this huge zeitgeist. Mm. And it started to distract attention from movies that I, a teenager, thought were real movies. Mm. And it started winning yeah. Oscars instead of L.A. Confidential. A teenager male. Yeah, I was stupid. Mm. But, like, I, I started getting angry at all the people who were supporting it because I just felt like there were a lot of things that were wrong with the movie that people weren't paying attention to. And I had no objection to romance movies at all. I loved romance movies even at the time. But I just felt like this wasn't a good James Cameron movie. And... Years went by, I hadn't revisited it in a while, and I, you know, my opinion soured just as sort of a backlash to the backlash to the backlash. Mm. And then I finally rewatched it. Titanic fucks. <laughs> Titanic is a great movie. Like, it's, it's corny, it's mm. undeniably corny. And yeah, some of the dialogue is pretty bad, but I actually think that's maybe not on purpose, but it's all part of the style. Yeah. It's trying to be that kind of old fashioned, in your face, retro sincerity, almost romance pulp. And on top of that, it's this huge epic production. What a huge risk mm-hmm. to tell that kind of story on that kind of scale. And I'm so glad it paid off. It plays like gangbusters. There's a few things that are kind of stupid. I'm still mad she dropped the heart of the ocean in the ocean. <laughs> that was terrible. Why would you do that? Bill Paxton wanted that. I'll never let go, Jack. Oh, I let go. I mean, yeah, yeah that didn't quite work, but whatever. They've had a night. It's been rough. Like, I don't, I'm not going to judge him too harsh. 
Like they've had a night. It's been a rough night. I'm not going to judge them too harshly. It wasn't. We're not thinking super logically while they were freezing to death. It was a night to remember. Hey. Hey. Um, so I love Titanic now. Mm, I didn't right. love Titanic. I, I, I was okay with Titanic originally. Mm. I let the popularity of Titanic turn me against that popularity, and mm. I was very immature, and I'm embarrassed by that now. And uh, then I revisited it, and I'm like, this movie mm. is sumptuous and great. Yeah, I, It's just big filmmaking on every single scale, and it works. I love that movie. Yeah, I, I, I respected it, but I didn't respect it at the same time yeah. when it first came out. It's like, this, this is like sort of pop filmmaking at its height. Yeah. But it's also just pop filmmaking, so yeah. fat. It's I not say. trying yeah. to do it, say anything meaningful about stuff. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because I was what, what? What was I when Titanic came out? Like fifteen. I didn't know shit about shit. What was that? Did I know? So, yeah, second year in college, that movie. Came I had no out. right um, to be angry about something like that. It was. I'm so embarrassed by it. Uh, I. I uh, if if we want if we're gonna stick with uh, James Cameron, I, th- I had a, a similar effect with Avatar actually. Oh um, really? I I don't think Avatar is like a great story or anything, mm. but I do agree with James Cameron that if you're gonna make a film, why aren't you going to make the biggest possible thing? Well, if that's and a that's, possibility for you, that's like, been not everyone has that money. I mean, after after Titanic, that became his ethos. Sure. It's like I'm I'm not gonna make a movie unless it can completely change the landscape and I admire that ambition I do and I see that ambition in Avatar uh, okay yeah it's it's a very typical story it's a white man go na- goes native story you can yeah. compare it to Dances with Wolves all you like yeah that movie's special effects are just as good as they got credit for yeah and it's dazzling and it looks amazing I want to say this right now hmm. and this is uh, this is purely subjective it's just Hmm. Me and I realize I'm really alone on this because there were people. I remember when Avatar came out, there were articles talking about people are experiencing clinical depression because they can never visit a world as beautiful as as Pandora. Yeah, and I'm like, wow, that's an impressive impact that that movie had. I can't deny that. But I watched the movie. I saw it in theaters opening weekend. Hmm. It didn't dazzle me that much. <laughs> like it's pretty. I, I was impressed by the motion capture effects, sure, but I actually didn't feel all that transported. It felt like New Zealand with some CGI in front of it. Except it was all CGI. I know, uh, well, some of it was actually New Zealand, but uh, composited. But, like, it just, there was something about it that was like, it's cool and all, but it it didn't blow my mind. Well, at, at the time, yeah, I, I was also that way. It's like, okay, yeah. this is... I've seen CGI characters before. I watched, you know, The Phantom Menace a decade before. It's right. like, we've already seen CGI characters. And there was Gollum. These are better, but mm. eh, it's just the next thing. And yeah. uh, a lot of critics, even at the time, were, were kind of stepping forward and saying the whole function of cinema is to have new images, is to give us something that our eye hasn't absorbed before. And Avatar did that. And at the time, I was like, yeah, but, you know, writing, story, tone, I prefer something, like, intimate and nightmarish over just something just dazzling and over-moneyed. Right. And uh, as the years have passed, the ambition that went into something like Avatar Mm. and the actual success of it uh, in terms of creating these new kinds of visuals and in creating, you know, a a really dazzling-looking planet and this species of giants... Uh, really was impressive. Yeah. And uh, as such, every time I hear about Avatar 2, I'm like, I can't wait to see that thing. Yeah. I, they actually like got actors in scuba suits and did motion capture underwater. I am fascinated. 
I am one hundred percent fascinated with that. I, I hope and James that James Cameron's not going to half-ass that shit. Of course he's going to look not. really impressive. Of course he's not. So I'm fascinated. It, if you know, if Avatar two, mm-hmm. I forgot the subtitle of. of I think it's just movie. Avatar two, right? No, I think it's like Avatar: The Waters of Navi or The Waters of uh, something like that. Uh, if if that is it. it only half as successful in creating dazzling new visuals as the first Avatar, then we're in good hands. Fair enough. And I am looking forward to seeing if it will be just as big as Avatar. Maybe. I I will say two things. Hmm. Uh, One, um, based on the conversation we just had, I I guess I owe Avatar rewatch. I rewatched the director's cut Mm -hmm. when it came out a couple years after the original Avatar release. And I liked it better. I think the director's cut actually adds some important context Mm -hmm. uh, that tells the story better. Yeah, yeah, the the one shot of him on Earth is really Really important important contrast and really helps sell why Pandora is so important, I think. Um, But uh, I ought to rewatch. I should probably rewatch it at some point. Um, And I will. The other thing I was thinking about, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is that as I grow older, and I think you're experiencing the same thing, we realize that a lot of the axioms that we were encouraged to live by, the, the idea that a movie is good if it does this, might be a general guideline that's useful for people to think about, but that's not the way art works. Mm-hmm. Like, um, subtlety is not in and of itself a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of movies that are brash, abrasive, in your face, or blunt that are mm-hmm. completely brilliant. Spike Lee. Yeah, Spike Lee is very rarely Spike subtle. Spike Lee is not a subtle filmmaker. <laughs> he's not, but he's brilliant. Like Black Klansman is not a subtle film. It is an absolutely brilliant yeah. film. I got, I've learned I got that. To, I got to interview Spike Lee once, yeah. and I, I was trying to be very gentle. First, I'm in the room with Spike Lee, so I'm incredibly intimidated. Oh yeah. So just say, Spike Lee, I'm intimidated. Ah, don't be intimidated. You're not going to make me angry. He got angry. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, but. But I said, so, so the, the film, and this was about Chirac, and he says, uh, so the films you're making, they're, they're really, um, how should I put this, direct. And he kind of laughed and said, yeah, yeah, we don't pussyfoot around, do we? Yeah. Like, no, you do not, sir. I, I interviewed Spike Lee once, too. Yeah. He's a really fun interview. He, he's, he's a really re- nice he's guy. He's funny. He's actually really gregarious, yeah. but you know, he's really passionate. So yeah, I, uh, I loved I loved him at the Oscars. He was having so much fun. Good for him. Yeah. Finally winning one of those damn things. He's like, <laughs> So what did, what did you think about uh, a British uh, oh, reporter yeah. asked him, what did you think about Green Book winning Best Picture? You're British, right? Yeah. Was it my cup of tea? And he just cracked himself up. And then he of, danced around yeah. because he was laughing so hard. <laughs> so happy about it. He was, looked really angry. He was like, you British? Hmm. Like, oh, yes, Mr. Lee. <laughs> he just makes a dumb dad joke. <laughs> Bless him. Hmm. Um, but another thing I was thinking about is how like we were often told that in cinema, it was so important to show, not tell. Oh, God, Don't put that, dialogue that in there. Again, yeah. And you know what? Sometimes that can be really, really useful. Like, only telling mm. can make a story just kind of leaden. Mm. However, the reason why that became so much of, like, an ethos is actually weirdly insidious, and it was actually encouraged by, like, the CIA to actually, like, try to, like, discourage movies from having too much political thought. Mm. They didn't want people, like, being too influenced by the politics of movies. And so they were encouraging people to sort of teach that that's, that, like, having long speeches Mm. and being direct about your stories are bad. If you go look at the history of drama, speeches are all over the fucking place. 
Shakespeare's nothing but speeches half the time. Like it's just you're allowed to talk, you're allowed to pontificate. People are allowed to like express themselves and be direct about what they mean. You don't have to find the perfect visual metaphor for everything. Well, and and you'll notice there are sometimes in movies when we don't actually see something, mm-hmm. we're just told about it, and it becomes a lot more vivid. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, a scene in Ingmar Bergman's Persona, yeah, where uh, the uh, BB Anderson character is telling a story about how she ha- she like hooked up with some dudes on a beach, yeah. and it. Some people like saw that movie years ago, and they were convinced that scene was in the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's just dialogue. Yeah, uh, there's an, uh, and this is actually something we think about all the time in horror. You know, like mm. we saw like oh show don't tell, but like also in horror, keep it off screen. Mm. Well, you can't have both. Mm. One of the scariest things in any horror movie is in The Exorcist Three, where there's a beloved character who dies, and they die off screen, and when they walk inside the room. There's all these little Dixie cups full of blood. No, they're, was, they're jars. They're jars. Yeah. They're like little jars full of blood. And they have been... He was drained of blood, and all the blood is in this room, and they didn't spill a drop. And just mm. describing what happened mm. is so much creepier than how like boring it would be to see that. Yeah, just watching somebody you know, like put up on a meat hook just, or whatever but, it was. Like, yeah. All of a sudden, your mind works. It gets so vivid. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but... Um, we grow over time. We learn over time that art isn't as rigid as we thought it was, that the ideas we had about art as a young mm-hmm. person uh, are limited by our limitations of age, at least, mm-hmm. and certainly experience as we grow. We meet more people. We are experiencing uh, new ideas, new thought. We're, we're listening to other people and gaining more empathy as we go along, and our ability to appreciate art grows and grows. Mm-hmm. So there's... Uh, everyone's got stories of movies that they didn't like and now they love or at least they should so revisit old movies once in a while don't take for granted that your opinion that you had 10 20 years ago Mm. is still accurate yeah and there are some that i know i'm kind of missing out on Hmm. Uh, a movie from this year that i wasn't very fond of was birds of prey yeah Um, i bought that (laughs) i don't have a lot of money but i made i I made and i I know i'm in the vast minority here I, i just found the film to be you know for for a uh, this crazy film about an ultra-violent clown woman that smashes the patriarchy <laughs> with a mallet. You'd think I'd be all about it, but yeah. I found this thing to be weirdly sedate, and yeah. I think it might have been the circumstances under which I saw it. It happens. I might have got a really bad presentation. I think that some of the sound was off in, in my movie house. It happens. Um, <clears throat> so I feel like that's one that I do owe a rewatch. Well, there are I, others I, that I, I have it. You should borrow it sometime. Well, maybe so, but... Yeah. Uh, if I can ever rewatch any movie ever anymore. It's hard but, um, to do sometimes. It's hard to make the time. But I'm yeah. trying to make the time to watch, like, even though it's hard, I'm trying mm. to make the time to watch, like, one movie for fun every week. Oh, God. Just what's one. That like? I okay, don't know. Yeah. I, I know you're so much busier than I am. Mean, you got family on top of everything else, but I'm trying. You yeah, got to got, rekindle the flame once in a while I, and not I, always watch something because you have to. I get a lot of questions like, what's your comfort film? It's like, I don't have those anymore. I don't I'm re- working. I don't, I'm working. I'm not re watching movies. I'm busy yeah. watching new it's ones. It's like asking a plumber, what's your comfort pipe? Like, yeah. <laughs> no, that's work. <laughs> don't do that for fun. This one? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we should move on. Uh, here's a letter from Franz. Hello, hello, Franz. Uh, dear Mr. Bibiani and Seibold, hope you're doing okay. Hello. South by Southwest moved online this year. It did. Uh, in, cooper- in cooperation with Amazon US. Uh, sadly, only for US audiences. The short film uh, festival Oberhausen also moved online. YouTube will do a film festival starting at the end of May. Here's my question. Do you think this will permanently change the way festivals are run and done in years to come? Uh, Also, by chance, did you watch the short film Dakara by Daria Kashiva? If so, what do you think about it? I I, I don't know that that one. Sorry about that. Uh, hope to hear from you. Hope to hear from you soon. Franz, she, they. Um, Um, Okay, so here's here's the deal with film festivals. 
A lot of them are moving online, uh, and I'm glad under these circumstances in particular because film festivals are an opportunity for independent films to get seen, to get seen by a wide audience, to build buzz, to get uh, purchased by studios, people can make the money back, and to be found by larger audiences eventually. Mm. Film festivals are an important part of the industry, and I think we would be foolish to do away with them. However... Putting them exclusively online is, I don't think, a great long-term solution for a couple of reasons. Uh, most significantly uh, is a lot of the towns that run that host these film festivals, be it Austin, Texas, or uh, Park City, uh, Utah. Uh, they need that money. Like, there was actually a really good episode of Last Week Tonight this week, if you ever get a chance. They, they put it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, where uh, Steve Lowe was talking about how the COVID nineteen situation has affected sports, mm. and how that's a that's a that's a unique situation in a lot of ways, and how the uh, shuttering of pretty much every sports uh, in the country has d- dealt a huge blow to the economy. Because on top of the players, there's all that ancillary uh, revenue that is being mm. lost. People making food, people buying tickets, people paying oh, for parking. It's like billion dollar industry. It's yeah. a billion dollar industry that it goes way beyond the players. People rely on sports, not just for entertainment, but for a living. And that's true for film festivals as well. That's true for a lot of different aspects of the film industry that are currently on lockdown. They're talking about uh, opening up Los Angeles by July 4th. I think that's ambitious. I also know a lot of people aren't going to be super eager to just jump right out and be normal again. Uh, so we'll see how that goes, but I think film festivals are going to want to go back to the festival, uh, environment. I think they're going to want to pump money back into the towns that have been graciously hosting those festivals for so long. I think when you put a bunch of film people, whether they, the filmmakers, the film producers, the studios, the critics, you put them all into one place, you generate buzz in a way that you can't normally just by everyone watching a film at home and then tweeting about it and submitting a review I think it's an important aspect of the industry and I think it's something that they're going to want to go back to at Mm. least mostly doing the old fashioned way Uh, partly Mm. I think they'll still have the festivals but I think the festivals will not be as widely attended after this Uh, probably not like for a year or two at least they're finally letting us uh, lowly critics uh, into the festivals in an online capacity now. And I think if... There's less gatekeeping. Yeah, there's a lot less gatekeeping now. Yeah. And I think uh, with much with many more critics all over the world right. now capable of attending Toronto or capable yeah. of going to Park City, Utah virtually, uh, it will allow word to spread much wider on these movies. Here's the- and I think... Uh, the festival themselves will become less of a festival and even more, which they already kind of are, yeah. uh, press junkets. Well, here's the thing, though, and here's why. I, here's something that I think doesn't necessarily seem obvious about that and why that might actually be a problem for the studios. Mm-hmm. Critics review movies out of film festivals. You'll see reviews for movies at Sundance mm-hmm. in January, and many of these movies sometimes don't come out until the end of the year. year years after, and sometimes final, multiple yeah. years afterwards. Uh, if every critic gets to see those movies in January and submit their reviews in January, then when the movie comes out at the end of the year, there will be a lot less conversation. Mm-hmm. There will be fewer people talking about it in the context of when it was released and sometimes after the initial buzz dies down people realize wait 
actually, that's not that good. <laughs> yeah. We, we had a huge buzz at it at Sundance because there was all that energy in the room and people were really excited opening night and there was a really positive reaction with one audience and then everyone else sees it and everyone's like, oh, wait, actually, like, Green Book did real well in Toronto and then it started coming out for the rest of the critics and other critics were decidedly mixed. So... <laughs> Granted, that's more of a critics thing. I'm sure studios aren't too happy with that, but sometimes no. movies do better with critics outside of the festival circuit than inside of it. Mm. So the idea of this multi-tiered wave of buzz, where people or a few people review it initially, build that buzz, and then the whole wave comes in later. You might lose that if everyone just reviews it in January, but then people don't see it for a year, mm. and then a year later, it's hard to get the critics excited about it again because no one's seeing it for the first time. Yeah. So that's something that might be a legitimate issue with that change if that occurs yeah we'll see though it's it's all gonna be weird it's all gonna be very weird um i'm i'm eager to see yeah what what the movie theater landscape will look like uh Mm -hmm. we're continuing our film review podcast there's been no shortage of streaming films uh there actually was no shortage of streaming films when we were reviewing theatrical releases but we were more interested in the theatrical experience Mm -hmm. we were reviewing the theatrical releases those were considered like the proper films. There was, no, uh, was this with, air with some, of grandeur. Yeah. Like, oh, well, these movies are in theaters, so we really need to make sure we talk about these. And we tried to look at other films as well as often as we could, but mm. I gotta tell you, man, I, there's, I'm a little, I'm a little conflicted because this, when we reviewed Scoob mm. uh, this last week, it was the first, like, Hollywood, Hollywood movie that I'd seen in a few weeks. Alright. And usually I'd see, like, two or three. You didn't see Trolls, did you? No, but that was a month ago. Yeah. I thought yeah. a few weeks. Like, one Hollywood, Hollywood movie, like, a month. Mm. And the rest of them were streaming films, independent films, uh, lower-budgeted genre films, documentaries. Think um, things that Netflix is, for whatever reason, are to slip under the table. Yeah, and movies that would, if they got a theatrical release, probably get a very limited theatrical release. Uh, whether that's right or wrong is, is not my point. Um... I found it harder to go back to Scoob after a month of that. (laughs) Yeah. After a month of that, I'm like, you know what? I'm not actually like... I mean, yeah, there's a few blockbusters that are going to come out this summer that I was hoping would be fun. I'm always up for another Fast and Furious movie. I like Mm -hmm. the first Wonder Woman. I hope the new Wonder Woman's great. But... I'm also fine if we just get a break from blockbusters for a few months. It's been a mercy. <laughs> it's actually been kind of relaxing. Like, mm. film Twitter isn't talking about some really stupid shit. Like, well, I mean, they are, the, but... Well, they are, but, like... It's they, not... Okay, it's they not are. All, it's not I'm, the uh, big... We uh, are. We're we part are. of it. Let's yeah, not pretend otherwise. Let's not, let's not make it other people. But um, when new blockbusters are coming out... We talk about the same shit over and over again. We yeah, rank the Star Wars movies. We rank the Fast mm. and the Furious. We do it all the damn time. And I'm not saying it's not fun, but it's repetitive. And it's so much nicer to just see like people like, oh, what's, what's trending on Twitter today? Wow, people are rediscovering the eyes of Laura Mars. <laughs> <laughs> that was trending. Holy it's, shit. It's, it's on the Criterion channel. I know, it's great. I, I, that's a movie, if you've ever seen the eyes of Laura Mars, it's a serial killer movie in which Faye Dunaway is a photographer of memory serves and mm. uh she starts having uh, visions of a serial killer she's looking at murder through a serial killer's eyes and she's trying to solve this murder it's basically mm. an american giallo uh it was co-written by john carpenter and it was directed by um irvin kirchner who would go on to direct empire strikes back and robocop 2 and robocop 2 thank you uh however 
It is a film that for many years was considered mildly embarrassing. I remember when I first saw it in film school, and I really liked it. And I told people I really liked it, and people were just like, you liked Eyes of Laura Mars? And these were snooty people. It's quite fine. It's good. <laughs> it's, it's it's beautifully photographed. Like they understand. Like here's, she's a photographer. Let's have film the movie with a photographer's eye, and let's really focus on perspective and vision. It's a rock solid. You know, I wouldn't say it's ahead of its time, but certainly one of the better of its time uh, serial killer thrillers. And it's really heartening to see it get reappreciated. That's something that I don't think would have had nearly as much attention if uh, if Black Widow had come out and that's all we were talking about. Yeah, people wouldn't be going to the Criterion Channel to find these these oddities written by uh, John Carpenter. I'm not saying that we're better off this way necessarily, but it's a nice change of pace and maybe we should enjoy it while it lasts. There's a great bit in that film from uh, the late, great René Bergenois. He's (laughs) Oh, yeah. Where uh, he has to lead the cops away from a, a party where Laura Mars is attending. Yeah. So he dresses in her clothes at her behest, and it's his birthday party. Oh, yeah. It's like, but it's, you have to go. You have to go, and you have to wear my dress. Like, but it's my birthday party. No, no, walk out and drag. It's like, <laughs> fine. You know, he's a good friend, so it's fine. And there's a bit where we see Faye Dunaway walking, the the cop, like, puts a, his hand on her shoulder, and it's Renee Abergenois yeah. in, in her clothes. He's like, wait a minute. You're not Laura Mars. No, I'm not. Thank you for noticing. Why are you dressed in a dress? It's my birthday. I can dress however I want. <laughs> that's that's a great thing about it's it. A, uh, it's a fun, great, fun, fun scene from the eyes of Laura yeah. Mars. Um, yeah, uh, th- I like that we are free to kind of explore this weird, uh, misshapen wasteland of streaming. Uh, the same way we would have perhaps explored the bottom shelves of a video store back in the day. We just would have picked up a box and watched what was interesting and buzz be damned. Yeah. We don't need to be part of a larger conversation to find the things that we'll really react to. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the better films I've seen in the last couple of months was that film To the Stars mm. or, or uh, also uh, the half of it. You know, these yeah. like really kind of sweet teenage lesbian coming of age dramas, but the both of them. That probably would have gotten buried under yeah, any the, circumstances. That yeah. may, maybe would have gotten a little release in an art house. Maybe I would have seen it if mm-hmm. I, you know, a screening had come within my path. It's a lot harder for us to go to screenings out in Hollywood at 7.30 p.m. on a Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, like or we, have we can to, we, just dial it up in the middle of the night when we're free. Like when we're when and and listen, I miss the theatrical experience. Do not get mm. me wrong, but when you're a film critic and you have to see all these different movies in a week, and they're all the way across town, and the you know the movie itself is two and a half hours long, but it takes an hour to get there, an hour to get back. That's a whole other movie I could have watched that day mm. and given you know some buzz to. There's an upside to this. There's also a gigantic downside, and I don't mean to minimize that. No, but for and, a and second, fact, I think as, it's okay to focus on the upside and how we've been able to highlight films that might otherwise have gone under the radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and yeah, and, and also be kind of grateful that we don't have to rank the MCU films for the yeah, tenth time. We uh, don't. We're still talking about it, but it's just it's not yeah. as generic a conversation we're bringing up because we want to yeah. not because it happened to come out this week exactly yeah. uh, people aren't chasing the same buzz exactly. uh, anyway let's move on here's a letter from J-Lo wow but, uh, but he says not that one oh Wow. <laughs> uh, greetings. A problem I run into pretty frequently is what cut of a movie do I watch oh, first? Oh, yeah. Well, a handful of straightforward and well-known uh, answers like Blade Runner, The Final Cut, yeah. uh, Kingdom of Heaven, The Director's Cut, or Alien 3, The Assembly Cut, 
or some have only uh, have only one available. Frequently, in my Blu-ray collection, I have multiple cuts for movies I've never seen in any other before in any other way. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice on choosing what cut to watch first if I'm planning to watch multiple versions in a brief period? Mm. Uh, a tool I found is a website called thisorthatedition.com, uh, which briefly mentions what editions exist and what which ones the director prefers. But I'd like to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Um, oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, there's a lot D- of... Director's cut. Okay, here, here, here's the thing about director's cuts. Yeah. They're for people who already like the movie. Uh, Mostly. It's, it's rare There's also that... people who are frustrated and are glad to see a different take. Maybe so, like in terms of, of Alien 3, for mm-hmm. instance. Like, yeah. there are a lot of people who or, are... Or the original cut of Blade Runner, which mm. got had a happy ending tacked on by the studio and had a terrible voiceover. But it, it, it was an interesting enough film that, uh, you know, the director uh, got enough clout to release a second cut in the 90s. And then multiple, I think there's like seven official cuts of that movie. Yeah. Uh, until 2005, they released the final cut. And that's the last time they recut Blade Runner. Yeah. So uh, far. So far. <laughs> I'm sure they'll a, think it's a lot else. of people grew up watching that 90, that 90s cut. Like that's the mm. proper cut in a lot of people's minds. And then they just sort of tweaked it in 2005. What's the proper version? You've probably seen the film already. Mm. So, uh, you know, if, if you've never seen, uh, kingdom of heaven, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Choose at random at that point. Well, here's the deal. The question There's is... There's not going to be a better cut of these. Well, necessarily, that's going to offer you a better or worse handle into the material. I, I disagree with that. Right. I, I think that's the case. But I also think that can be... Uh, because here's the, here's the deal. If you're looking for a tried and true method of what cut to choose, mm. there's a lot of things that prevent that from being cut and dry. It seems like on the surface as though the director's cut would surely be the better cut, right? Mm. So surely we should start with that and just see that. Director's cut isn't always the better cut. The director's cut of The Warriors sucks. The director's cut of uh, Exorcist, Exorcist, the version you've never seen, Mm -hmm. which came out in 2000, uh, is a vastly inferior version of the movie. I don't think it's it was, vast, but I do prefer the original. Okay, it, it's certainly inferior, though. Yeah, they, sure. They added okay. all these little extra flourishes. There's, like, subliminal yeah. faces that appear in the background that are not so subliminal because you've noticed them. Yeah. The spider walk sequence is scary, but it, yeah. it messes with the pacing of the movie. Yeah, there's a reason these things were cut. Uh, Milos Forman's director's cut of Amadeus mm-hmm. adds a few scenes to the middle of the film, and they establish why Costanza Mozart hates Salieri so much at the end otherwise it feels a little arbitrary Mm. but it actually messes with the pacing like it just becomes a longer movie in the middle drags a little bit Mm. so I actually prefer the original studio cut of that Um, although they're both good Mm. and if you only saw the director's cut you've seen the movie and you probably see why it's good but Mm. I think the studio cut's Um, a little bit better so that's not a tried and true thing another thing is studios started to tack on this idea of the unrated cut in a lot of like Blu-ray releases, the home, home video releases, yeah, yeah. And so, oh, this is the unrated cut. Unrated cut is not necessarily the director's preferred cut. Unrated mm. cut is sometimes just longer, where they would just take you know some additional jokes, stuff maybe they cut down to get an R rating, and just throw them back in. Sometimes that's they're not better off for having that in there. Mm. So an unrated cut can sometimes just mean here's the movie, but now the pacing sucks. And also we didn't pay to get these new scenes scored. So we threw in just some random music on them. Mm. Sometimes they don't work at all. So that's also tricky. And the other thing you might have to ask yourself is what if you pick a cut of the movie and you don't feel like watching any of the others because it sucked? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You don't, you know, like, so 
I think Whitney has a point where just jump in mm-hmm. is is pretty useful. You might want to research why the cuts are different and maybe see what's significant. I don't see a particular reason, and this is just my opinion. I don't see a particular reason to ever see the theatrical cut of Kingdom of Heaven again. The uh-huh. theatrical cut of Kingdom of Heaven was competent, but also didn't work. The director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven, everything that didn't make sense in Kingdom of Heaven suddenly makes sense, and it's a, such a better film. Okay. It's a dramatically improved I, film. I haven't seen that director's cut. I Ooh, you should. I did see the director's cut uh, of Daredevil, uh, <laughs> the yeah. uh, Mark Stephen Johnson film. Yeah. Uh, and I, I saw the theatrical release. I didn't hate it. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to leap to its defense too much anymore. Very much of its time. It's, it's an early, t- it may be the early 2000s film. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty dated, but you know, yeah. that, that was the style we had at the time. So I can't yeah. come down on it too hard. And I think uh, it's a better script than it is a movie. Yeah, and when, I, especially I think, when you see the director's cut and it has that whole like uh, uh, lawyer subplot well, in there, which yeah, actually the, makes sense. The, the director's cut actually has an entire subplot with uh, without the superhero elements. It's yeah. just like lawyerly stuff. Yeah, which makes and sense because Daredevil is also a lawyer. Also like, a lawyer he's in but it, it's not you know? just a subplot. It actually ties in and explains a lot of the main story, and it yeah. makes a, it's just sort of a. a more solid film but you go back and you see that theatrical release it's like okay it's just these are both just sort of fun comic book tony kind of early 2000s action pictures it goes from like 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 one the, the director's cut might be slightly better yeah, I think the director's cut's from, better from but a technical perspective not, but not having that particularly that ex- good having that yeah. extra exposition yeah. Like it cleans it up, but it doesn't necessarily make it better, you yeah. know? Which is to say, we don't have a great, perfect answer for you here. Mm-hmm. If you were asking about a specific film, we could probably give you advice, but there isn't like a, a card key. Yeah. There, there isn't a black box like in sneakers to just decode how to do this. What mm-hmm. I just, what I recommend is, uh, okay, if it were me mm-hmm. and I was going in blind, what I would probably do if I had the time and I was suspected I had the inclination mm-hmm. is I would probably see the original release and then I would wait a day or two and then I would watch the director's cut, assuming it's an actual director's cut and not just a longer cut. Mm-hmm. And that way I can see the difference more clearly. And also theoretically I'm seeing the better version of the movie. If I'm seeing a worse version of the movie, so be it. But if I'm seeing the better version of a movie, it will become that much clearer what went wrong. Mm. So that would probably be my go-to under most situations, unless I had heard very specifically about one mm. cut or another and why it was good or bad. But again, I just there is no one well, way of going. You, you were just talking about how the, the director's cut of Avatar was the superior one. I think it is. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, the director's cut of Aliens is a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I think it, uh, the added subplot with uh, Sigourney Weaver about mm-hmm. how she was a mother and her daughter died amplifies mm-hmm. the whole subplot with Newt later. I think it makes the movie a little stronger. Uh, yeah, but it, yeah. again, it doesn't fundamentally change it, a lot it's of still that a, movie, I think it yeah. changes her character like, and maybe uh, the theme, but mm-hmm. like the movie kicked ass regardless. Like It's yeah. still a great movie. Yeah. You know? It's, it's all, I mean, it's already too long. <laughs> Even the short version is too oh, long. Oh, I don't know. I don't think there's so much thing as too much of James Cameron's Alien. Two, two, two hours movie. and 15. That, the, the 80 minutes in and out. Just oh, sh- no. That movie's... Mm. I'm sorry, man. You're so wrong about Aliens. <laughs> I love Aliens so yeah. fucking much. I think you're wrong about Aliens. I, I was too... It, I encountered Aliens too late in my life to enjoy it. Uh, if, if I had seen it when I was 15, maybe. But, you know, I was already a crotchety old dude in his mid-30s by the time yeah. I saw Aliens. All right, let's move on. 
here we go. Here's a letter from Jim. Hi, Jim. Hi, Jim. Uh, gentlemen, imagine the distant year of 2012. A younger <laughs> me was taken aback by the announcement that ABC was going to air the TV movie A Christmas Story 2. Ah, A follow-up yes. to the Let's Play This 24 Hours a Day on Two TV Networks classic. Mm-hmm. With Bucky O'Hare as my co-pilot, we flew to the internet. I knew I had seen a sequel called A Summer Story when I was younger. The narrator mm-hmm. was the same from the original. Charles Grodin was the dad. Uh, uh, a Culkin was Ralphie. And there were <laughs> epic top top battles, one ending in a sewer where I assumed Pennywise looked on. Uh, the film was actually called It Runs in the Family. It bombed hard. Oops, sorry turn about that. That's off my computer. Phone. That's my computer, not my phone. Okay, I can't turn, turn off. off my computer, then uh, we'd have no podcast. <laughs> uh, beside, um, it's called It Runs in the Family and It Bombed Hard. Uh, besides Return to Oz... What forgotten sequels do you think people need to see? And are there any sequels that you feel only you remember? <laughs> um, okay, so there's actually like a lot of adaptations of uh, uh, Gene Shepard's books. Like a lot of them, like a lot of straight to TV movies yeah. that are based off of like stories about his life. Yeah. Christmas Story is the most famous, but there's actually like a whole TV movie franchise. It's uh, worth exploring. I'm sure Hallmark has done a couple, right? Oh, I actually no, they, no, I think it predates they, Hallmark. Sorry, they wouldn't license stuff. What am no, I talking they're about? Not pay for that. Um, certainly not something as famous as that. They'll like do like mm. little romance novels that centered on Christmas. Mm. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. Uh, however, there are a lot of movies that have remakes and sequels that have been largely swept under the rug. A lot of these are done uh, for straight to TV. Uh, there is a sequel to It's a Wonderful Life. Mm. It's called Clarence. It's specifically about the angel. It was made in like 1990, and it stars one of the Carradines. Who was the Carradine who was in Revenge of the Nerds? Is it Robert Carradine? Robert Carradine. Robert Carradine plays the angel Clarence in a sequel mm. to It's a Wonderful Life. That's on top of the remake of It's a Wonderful Life called uh, It Happened One Christmas, starring Marlo Thomas... And, As the George Bailey character, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's gender flipped protagonist, and Orson Welles plays Mister Potter. Uh, <laughs> that's a really interesting remake, by the way. We did a whole episode of a Patreon exclusive podcast on that. It's a Wonderful Life had fallen so completely out of favor and out of the public eye that that made for TV remake recaptured people's interest in seeing the original. The reason It's a Wonderful Life is considered a classic now is because that made for TV remake remade it oh. <laughs> that made for tv remake actually is like really mm. important <laughs> i love that made for tv remake mm. it's not terrible either but anyway um i'm trying well, to think there, what else has there, a weird well, been a lot of movies that um like years and years and years would pass and then somebody would realize hey wait a minute we, we still have the rights to this old thing yeah and they do some straight to video sequel people, like a, like a christmas story 2 people think that's uh, new that's been going on no, forever or, or uh, th- there's even a Christmas Vacation too. Oh, it's terrible! Um, I, I All about Randy Quaid's character. Yeah. It's awful. I-, I saw the guys on Red Letter Media review it. I don't need to see that it's, movie now. You do not. I saw that. I had to do an article where I, uh, uh, I, I. It's a ranking article, but the way I view ranking articles is the ranking isn't important. What's really important is to get a broad overview mm. of someone's work or a whole franchise of work. So I, I did a ranking for the rep of all the National Lampoon movies. Never do that. There's like four good ones. Yeah, I was about to say National Lampoon doesn't have the greatest. There's like record. four good movies in their entire in their entire catalog. It, it, it says something that I remember watching Senior Trip and thinking, oh, that one's not bad. That one's okay. Yeah, Senior Trip is okay. Senior Trip is not okay. It's got Tommy Chong and Matt Frewer. I like them. It's got to, oh, it's got Jeremy Renner. I think it's his first movie. 
Oh, that's right. It does have Jeremy yeah. Renner. Weird, right? Hmm. Uh, uh, here's one that people forget about. I want to make sure I get the title right. Uh, oh, you're thinking about the last Day. days of Patton. The, uh, 19, the sequel to Patton. 1986, mm. all about the death of General Patton, mm. and George C. Scott reprised the role. Oh God! Yeah, that's one of George C. Scott's most iconic roles. Great movie, by the way. Like really cool. Like it works. Like Pat, it still oh, Pat, works. Patton is wonderful. Patton's fantastic. Patton is epic and huge, and uh, Coppola's screenplay is fantastic. I think he co-wrote it, but. Mm. Um, yeah, I've never seen the sequel, Last Days of Patton. Mm. It's weird that that exists. <laughs> it's weird that that exists. It frustrates the hell out of me when somebody announces a sequel and they forget that there had already been a sequel. Yeah. Uh, that happened with uh, Legally Blonde. Thank you. There was uh, Legally Blonde. That was a hit. It was adapted into a Broadway mm. show. Uh, yeah. There was a Legally Blonde 2, which is a bad film. And uh, <laughs> There's some stuff I like in it. It's about the freaking dog. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about Elle's dog. I like Sally Field in that movie. Okay, fair. All right. Uh, And then there was a film, a straight-to-video film called Legally Blondes, which wasn't about Elle. It was about a pair of twin girls who were going through a similar... Were they like cousins or something? They were caught, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was a sequel. It was a straight-to-video sequel. But it took place in in the same universe with with mentions of the same characters. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was straight-to-video, but it's still real. And then there started to become announcements. Oh, and uh, and Reese Witherspoon, she's going to come back. She's going to play Elle again in Legally Blonde 3. It's like, no, that's Legally Blonde 4. You had a Legally Blonde 3. That's how I felt when they talked about, like, oh, we're going to, like, bring everyone back for Mean Girls 2. There is a, there mean, is Girls a mean Girls 2. 2. It's called Mean Girls 2. <laughs> yeah. It's... Actually, I haven't seen that one. Did I see that one? No, I didn't see no. that one. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. It, it was, there was this period where I was trying to watch as many, like, straight-to-video sequels as I could, just, just because just I for... thought they were weird and fascinating. Mm. And some of them are good. But yeah. uh, here's, a, here's a sequel. Oh, here's a good one. Mm. Here's a legitimately good sequel that nobody talks about. If you recall, and I've talked about this a lot, it's one of my favorite horror movies of the 80s, the C. Thomas Howell, Rucker Howard, Jennifer Jason Lee horror thriller, The Hitcher, mm. in which C. Thomas Howell picks up a hitchhiker. The hitchhiker happens to be uh, Rucker Howard as an unstoppable serial killer. Mm. Car chases and mayhem ensue. It's incredible. <laughs> really, really amazing. Like, it's mm. fucked up and awesome. Dark, dark and nihilistic. Great movie. Like, yeah. seriously, if you've never seen it, see it. It's so fucking good. Uh, there was a remake that a lot of people remember starring Sean Bean. I actually never got around to it. Uh, However, just before the remake, there was a straight-to-video sequel called The Hitcher 2. What was It's got a subtitle. I can't remember. It's called The Hitcher 2. Hitcher 2, When a Stranger Calls Back. See, Thomas Howell comes back for it, and this time The Hitcher, the the bad guy, uh, is played by Jake Busey, who is a good creep. (laughs) Jake Busey is like his dad, really good at playing creeps. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know what? That movie is good. That's not as good as the original, but that's a good thriller. It goes off in some unexpected directions. There's some great action sequences in it. It's pretty suspenseful. Like, that's a rock-solid two-and-a-half to three-star horror thriller. And just nobody saw it, and it's a shame because it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, Quick, how many Hellraiser movies are there? Oh, geez, is it nine now? It was ten. Ah! <laughs> There's ten Hellraiser movies. Oh, and most of them are so bad. Most of them are bad. Uh, one is great. One is great. Two, two is, is even, better. Two is even better. Four is, is pretty good because it kind of cleans up the like narrative mess caused by part three. Four gets a bum rap because it's an Alan Smithy film mm. and everyone just assumes it's going to be awful. There's actually some really good stuff in four. There's a lot, yeah, a lot yeah. of interesting ideas in four. Three is stupid as hell, but there's it's kind of fun. Mm. So... 
even if, though it's if you ever wanted to see Hellraiser is just like a dumb slasher yeah dumb 90s yeah. slasher where like someone becomes like a compact disc Cenobite <laughs> and tries to kill you with compact discs that's fucking stupid it's not unentertaining <laughs> I do have a good time watching it it's just really fucking stupid and then all of the straight-to-video sequels are either the worst fucking thing ever, mm. really bad and have almost nothing to do with Hellraiser, and, like, the two that are or kind both, of okay... Yeah. Well, they, or both. Mm. And there's two that are, like, kind of okay, but only after you've watched all the others. Because if you went straight from Bloodlines to, like, with the last two Hellraisers, no, you would say, fuck this. Yeah, so they lowered our standards so much. Hellraiser Revelation uh, is only good because they actually went back to the Hellraiser formula. Yeah. But it's just a remake of Hellraiser at that point. Yeah, and, 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 uh, and I hesitate to say good. It just, just, fi- it just after, like, five films, it finally to, feels like to, Hellraiser uh, again. Compared to parts five through eight, which are all trash. Yeah, like, like uh, seriously, nine at least feels like a Hellraiser. It's a bad Hellraiser, but it feels like Hellraiser, and I welcomed it. And ten has a crime plot, like... A, a third of the movie like two thirds of the movie you don't need to see and but the a- third of all, like all the Cenobite weird demon bureaucracy stuff is really fascinating yeah I, think, I like all that stuff I, I think they got too uh, too deep in the mythos uh-huh. Like they tried to t- started to reveal too many things about the Cenobites and started making Cenobites bureaucratic. And I'm like, I don't want to see Terry Gilliam's Hellraiser. But that 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 was a big part of Clive Barker's stuff. Is that it's hell, boring? That hell, yeah. There's like kind of a bureaucratic element to hell. Yeah, I don't want to see. Here's the thing: they literally show paperwork. Yeah, I don't want to see the paperwork. The paperwork isn't the thing I want to but see. But they, they hooked up the typewriter to the guy's arms, so they're typing in blood. It's cool. I, uh, in theory, yes. It just doesn't feel weird, right. Weird gothy If imagery. it was its own thing, I yeah. think I would have been fine with it. But as a Hellraiser movie, it's still one of the two... Two good straight-to-video sequels. Again, yeah. good is extremely relative. Better than the others mm. straight-to-video sequels. But, uh, uh, yeah, just, I don't know. Like, I just feel like Hellraiser moves so far away from what the franchise started. I think, and not in an organic way. A lot of it felt really forced. Like, I think people just didn't really watch the movies or didn't get what they were about. It's like, oh, this cool imagery. I don't care. The the worst kept secret in Hollywood is that they just kept churning out straight to video Hellraisers or they'd lose the license Mm. and they would take scripts that had nothing to do with Hellraiser and just throw Pinhead in there. Pinhead in there. Yeah. It's it's um, a recipe for making bad movies. Here's another question: How many Stepford Wives movies are there? Oh, way too fucking many, and people do not know about these either. There's the Stepford Wives, 1975. There's the Stepford Husbands. Yes. There's the Stepford Children. Yes. I'm missing one. There's one called Revenge of the Stepford Wives, oh, and then that's then there cheap. was the the slapstick the remake. remake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, a lot of those TV movies. So there's, there's five Stepford Wives. Movies. Weird, right? Uh, when you start del- like really digging into uh, just bizarre sequels, uh, mm-hmm. you're going to find some weird ones. Um, I was shocked. I remember when the movie came out, and I was shocked to learn that a film called The Two Jakes was a sequel to Chinatown. Oh, yeah. It was directed by Jack Nicholson. Yeah. I haven't seen The Two Jakes. Maybe I ought to. Yeah, I need to get around to that uh, someday. Yeah, they, they there are sequels to everything. Are there any that kind of surprised me? Ugh. I don't think so. <laughs> oh, I'm sure if you uh, I'm racked sure, your brain. I'd really have to think about it. If I discovered that something had a sequel and it turned out to be really good. Or just interesting. Yeah. You know, like, um, but yeah, there's plenty. Mm. And again, people think that like Hollywood only invented remakes and franchising recently. They've been doing it since literally the dawn of cinema. Yeah. There were franchises, I mean, there were sequels. In the, in the 2000s, those films became really high profile releases that were mm-hmm. getting a lot of ink. And a lot of money, 
And so you, we saw trends emerge, especially in horror, but well, across the board about how films were being films uh, from a particular era of mm-hmm. uh, nostalgia. That is the films people our age, you and yeah. me, William Bibiani, uh, saw when we were young. A lot of those films were being remade by people our age, executives who are our age. Yeah. And uh, they were getting a big commercial push as well. These weren't like little... It's like, let's remake Footloose, but let's like kind of sneak it off to the side. No, let's like remake Footloose and really insert it into the conversation. Oh, yeah, we're going to remake Footloose. And you know that like weird tractor stunt that they did where they were going to like run two tractors into each other and play chicken? Mm. Okay, we're going to do that, except now it's a demolition derby with school buses. Yeah, that's a real thing in that movie. We're going to make it a high octane remake of Footloose. And I'm going to tell you right now. It's really cool. Mm. <laughs> it's a fun remake. Yeah. I like that remake a lot, actually. Um, and, uh, and but yeah, it's all there. And I, and I have theories about why all these things were being sequelized and remade. Well, but, I think the reason uh, we're so hyper aware of them is that in the last 20, 25 years or so, uh, especially with the, uh, the internet, um, f- movie news turned from a thing that you would read like one part of the newspaper is dedicated to it once a day and maybe you once read... Once a week, pre- even. Oh, yeah. Once a week in some cases. Maybe you read Premier Magazine or Entertainment Weekly. Mm. But they weren't trying to add 20 news stories a day mm. to various uh, publications. We're very hyper aware of what happens in the industry. We're hyper aware of movies that will never be made. Mm. We know all about them. They were in the trays. People talked about them. People signed them. Most of the time, like throughout Hollywood history, if a movie didn't get made, you probably didn't hear about it. Mm. You know why? Because it didn't really affect you. It's (laughs) interesting, and I'm glad we have all that history written down, but like people, like the lay people, weren't hyper aware that a movie was getting remade or that sequel was getting remade. You could go to a movie theater and not know what was playing. Yeah. It was a thing. People would go to a movie theater to see what was playing there. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's a better way to do things. I'm just saying it's a different it's, way. It's, and it's, it's a it, way to do something. And the reason yeah. why it feels like a lot of this stuff is new is because we're more hyper-aware of it now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, my theory is that we went through that wave is the, the internet kind of blurred popular culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was all, all of a sudden there was so much to get through that there there was no way for a dominant ethos to emerge any longer. People could kind of come up in little pockets, but the only way to really make sure that we could rally around something was to make sure something that existed before the inception of the internet was still viable. Mm. So you'll notice, and I've, I've been waiting for this to emerge. Mm. All of the things that were remade or rebooted were from things before the inception of the internet. Right. Uh, we have yet to, as far as I know, remake or reboot properly Hmm. something that originally came to dominance after the invention of the internet now i thought that uh jigsaw saw eight was that thing but it turns out that was just another sequel it was actually in continuity with the other films yeah that's a it's a reboot it's like a soft reboot where they're doing from a different direction but yeah but it it is it is in the same continuity Uh, that's my understanding they're not reintroducing jigsaw to the world with that film that is my understanding there has been an announced uh a remake of paranormal activity they're going to go back and redo that oh is that and i think that might be the first time uh, now there was a remake of that uh, of the film Cabin Fever. Oh yeah, enough, with the same script. With the same script, and that seems more like an experiment than a proper. Yeah, remake. I don't know why he even did that. Mm. Like it wasn't like Cabin Fever didn't make money. 
coming like, in. And, gonna, and it didn't have so much clout yeah, that they needed to Yeah, like had a couple of straight to video sequels, which memory serves are not good. Like, yeah, I don't know why. That was a weird one, mm. wasn't it? That was a weird one. That might be the, the only example. Well, okay, of, but, what, what about, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Does it need to be completely original or could it have been a movie that was adapted from something? Like oh, for example, like, like for example, uh, and I, I I know you're gonna like it was like it's an old book, but it was adapted. Well, not and old popular book, popular for the first time. Not an old book. I'm thinking of uh, for example, hmm. uh, Spider Man. Spider Man's rebooted multiple Def- times. Definitely doesn't count. Definitely doesn't count. No, because Spider Man Sp- was, Spider- was already huge. Spider Man's okay. from the '60s. I'm throwing it out there. Yeah, that's why you, I'm asking. You, you but it a, wasn't a movie a in the '60s. No, but you make a film out of okay. it. It's from something from the '60s. It's something that's familiar from pre-internet days. Hellboy. Hellboy oh, was relative. Hellboy was relative. It, was, it predated the, the, the internet, com- but it was the obscure. Book, the comic book wasn't popular enough. I, I'll yeah. give you Hellboy because yeah, Hellboy has been rebooted. Yeah, because Hellboy again. Hellboy was a comic mm. book. It predated that. It was a cult comic book for a long time. Mm. It won some awards, but it never had the mainstream success of X Men or Spider Man. Yeah, and, and then they made that film, yeah. and that was like 2004, if I recall. Around there, uh, and, and then they ran the sequel they, a few years later. Yeah, in like 2018. And um, no, no, the, no. The sequel was, was in like 20, 2008. The sequel was, and the, yeah. the remake was 2018. Uh, no, the sequel was 2019. The remake was last year, 2019. Was it? Yeah. It was like beginning oh, of, it was beginning of the year. It was like April. Uh, well, like I'm a still lot the of, only one who liked it. Like a lot about that movie, I don't remember it. Um, I'm still the only one who liked that movie. I think that movie's fun, man. I think the remake of Hellboy it's is like, a blast. How, how do you put Hellboy in a ring with a werewolf luchador and have it be boring? I don't understand I don't that. understand either, because yeah. I was having fun. I don't All know right. what the hell movie you saw. <laughs> um, anyway, there's a ton. Uh, do we have time for one more letter? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, like, one more letter. Let's, let's, uh, here, uh, let's take it out. Here's a letter. Here's a letter from Richard. Hi, Richard. Hi. Um, greetings from the hinterlands of Minnesota. Ooh. Uh, uh, I was perplexed by uh, why you guys would choose to call your Firefly Out podcast Out of Gas. The two are anything but out. You two are anything but out of gas. Ah, I you. believe that time will show that you are not even near, nearing your peak in terms of talent and Patreons. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's right. Uh, I was relieved uh, when Bibbs explained the name from a Firefly episode uh, and not out of any sense of doom for your careers. No, oh. no. <laughs> out of gas. We're just out of gas. We're just doing the Firefly podcast. We're running on empty. When we, uh, when we came up with a name for our Star Trek podcast, we debated it for weeks mm. and uh, finally we were looking at episodes of Star Trek mm. and we realized there was an episode called All Our Yesterdays and it just seemed to kind of fit mm. and I was thinking we should follow that same like uh, pattern for the Firefly podcast mm. yeah. and there's an episode of Fire- Firefly called Out of Gas the show got cancelled before it's time mm. closest thing we got <laughs> we really we kind of rushed Firefly into production because we wanted to reward everyone Firefly, if you're new, uh, Firefly was a reward uh, for our patrons. We said if we ever got 250 patrons, we would finally review Firefly and do one podcast per episode. Mm. Um, and as soon as we hit 250, we're like, shit, we got to do this. So we like started Just it like, within, within like two weeks. Yeah. And um, yeah, we didn't put as much like thought into the title for that one we just kind of threw it out there and, but and i was totally unfamiliar with yeah. firefly so i couldn't have contributed anyway. i had a lot of fun with it though mm. yeah and of course i knew perker's batman so we'll have to probably follow that pattern for mm. batman the animated series episode i don't know what we pick the, the only title i know off the top of my head is almost got him yeah and almost got him is is a little too vague for it a podcast really, title <laughs> it doesn't really work it's a great name though i love that. it's mm. one of my favorite episodes of that show yeah. anyway moving on uh i was relieved when Bibbs explained it was the from a firefly episode yep. um uh, if you keep up the great content, you're bound to gather more and more listeners and patrons. Yours, yeah. Richard. Oh, just, oh, it was just oh, thank nice. you. Oh, oh, thank you. That's a nice letter. Oh, thank you so mm. much. Well, that's lovely. Mm. Uh, but I feel like we should go out on one. Maybe that's a question. Okay. Uh, here's one from okay. Hayden. And I think we have several. We have a few Haydens, Haydens who listen to us. Thank um, you, Hayden. 
Hayden A. <laughs> Hello, uh, I should preface by saying this is not a gotcha question ah. because you two brought up a lot of great points, some of which I don't agree with. Uh, and so, some I agree with, some I don't. Um, my question is about how some of your arguments pertain to slasher movies, particularly about how you should remember that people who James Bond kills have families that love them. Often the victims are essentially kids or young adults and slashers, and often they don't have, aren't doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most we usually see is a few of them are capital A assholes. But nonetheless, series like Friday the 13th have you rooting for the slaying of young people who, are, who as well have families hmm. who love them, while some slasher films... Do take the kills seriously. Many don't and want you to have a thrill. In some ways, uh, Jason killing two teens who just want to have sex is even worse than Thor killing Thanos because at the very least, Thanos committed genocide, giving giving a more substantial reason for his death. This is why It Follows is one of the best horror movies of all time, in my opinion. <laughs> it literalizes the actual punishment of these, quote, sinful acts that you follow in slashers. Keep in mind, I love slasher movies. Mm-hmm. One of the great thrills that... Uh, in that mostly garbage Friday the 13th game was crushing a teen's skull as Jason. Mm. Oh, the, the video game you're talking about oh, yeah, Friday yeah. the 13th video game. Mm. Uh, but I think it's fair to criticize the, f- uh, I think it's fair to criticize the flippant use of violence and slashers as well as in Marvel movies. Hayden. Um, uh, well, certainly. And I don't think that's, it's fair to say that like, you know, we, we talk a lot about how Siskel and Ebert hated slashers, and it's actually mm. one of the things that made me want to be a critic was because I felt like they were kind of missing the point. Mm. Um, and I think the I think that the big difference for me is this: when James Bond kills a bad guy, he is portrayed as morally absolutely right. Well, I noticed you called the person he killed a bad guy. Exactly. Yeah. In a slasher. Jason Voorhees doesn't have the moral high ground. He may have a motive, mm. and that motive may involve a twisted sense of morality. But Jason Voorhees is the bad guy. Mm. And when we have a clarity there, mm. a moral clarity that what we are doing here is we are taking a walk on the dark side, and we are Our- reveling in something that is uh, gross or mm. uh, not, well, twisted or the, uh, dark. It's something that it's it's not the contract that we sign when we watch a movie about a heroic spy saving the world. Mm. It's a different uh, uh, tone, and I think the deaths feel a little different to me well, it's, yeah, in it's, both cases. It's not just violence unto itself. It's the use of violence, isn't yeah. it? Um, James Bond is a hero. Um, Thor is a hero. They're called superheroes. We call these yeah. things superhero movies. They wear bright costumes. Thor literally stand for righteousness Thor, and justice. Thor literally, <clears throat> the whole point is he cannot lift his hammer unless he is a good person. Yeah, yeah. Literally, he stops being a hero if he ceases to be a good person. He was incapable of lifting that hammer just because he was irresponsible for a bit. Mm. So you're telling me that killing a guy who posed you no threat? I mean, yeah, I'm not saying the death well, penalty isn't, like, perhaps applicable in this case, but there's no due process there. Well, Dennis also, could yeah. have potentially helped them solve other problems. Like, just killing the guy? It's not heroic. No, it's not. Yeah, I'm not saying it, it I don't might, get it, but it it's might, not heroic. It might, yeah, fulfill a, a sense of justice in the world. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, you know, he, again, as Guardians not, died by the boatload. That's not a heroic That's not a heroic thing to do. You can't call that act heroic. Mm. No one's claiming that Jason Voorhees is heroic. And if they do claim he's heroic, I will fight that. <laughs> and uh, I will disagree with that very, very strongly. And slasher movies, yeah. Uh, are we going to a slasher movie to watch people die and get a thrill out of it? Yes, we are. Yeah. There is a is dark... that a sick thrill? Yes. It, it's a sick thrill. It's, yeah, it's, it's what the horror movie does. It, it, might it allows be, uh, you to revel or mm. dwell or encounter things that are twisted, gross, yeah. fearsome. 
Uh, and and indeed that that's what the that's the, the genre is for. It's about yeah. exploring fear and death and pain. Yeah. And there might be a little bit of a, a nihilistic thrill that you're getting out of that. Yeah, a it lot can of be people, punk rock. Yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of people really roll with that. I mean, after you watched a lot of those later uh, slasher sequels, the the Halloween or the the Friday the Thirteenth or the Freddy sequels, mm-hmm. you're there to see the monster. Yeah. You're not there to see you know the heroic teens and how interesting and complex they are. No, you'll note like in a lot of those movies, in, in particular, I would say. Uh, Friday the 13th and Halloween Mm. uh, maybe not some of the later installments but for the middle uh, the movies start off with some pretty strong teen characters Mm. especially uh, Friday the 13th 2 and Halloween 1 they're really well written teen characters because we're supposed to sympathize with them it's supposed to be a damn tragedy when they die as the series goes on and the killer takes more of the focus we don't want to spread that focus too thin and have a bunch of fully realized characters. Mm. So a lot of the characters in those later slash middle yeah, Halloween them, and Friday the 13th movies yeah. are cartoons. Yeah, we don't call them, uh, we call them Freddy movies. We don't call them Nancy movies or yeah. Alice movies. Yeah, these are movies, the, the characters in movies like Friday the 13th part 6 mm. or 7 or 4. <laughs> Like, or most of them, really. I mean, maybe there's, like, one or two that we can, like, associate with and like more than the others. But most of them are, like, kind of sloppily written. And I think that's partly by design because you can get away with... It's like there's a reason why it's okay to drop an anvil on Yosemite Sam and not okay to drop an anvil on you. Mm. It's because Yosemite Sam can take it. He's a fictional, (laughs) fake character. And that's okay. And, yeah, all movies are fictional, but not every movie is presented as fake mm. as something like Friday the 13th part six is. Yeah, yeah. That's a fake movie and they're doing it on Do purpose you, and I love that movie. When you compare, you know, the per- the people James Bond kills or the people, uh, you know, Indiana Jones kills, yeah. uh, our, our objection, my objection anyway, comes from this idea that there are different kinds of violence. Uh, the Nazis that somebody kill, the people that a Nazi kills are mm. just as dead as the people Indiana Jones kills. Technically, uh, now a Nazi is a bad guy. Yeah, I think one. I think some of those deaths are more tragic than the others. Yeah, I mean, when, when Indiana Jones, <laughs> I think pull, it's fair to say that Indiana Jones pulls a trigger and like a bullet penetrates three Nazis at once in Last Crusade. If you yeah. remember on, uh, during that that pretty awesome tank sequence. Yeah. Uh, my objection with the way violence is wielded in action movies is that it does present a version of violence that is presented as heroic. Yeah. Committing violence, committing murder, is a fun thing that good guys do. Exactly, that's and the that's difference. what I kind of object to. That yeah. that it, you can be, you can commit murder and be morally in the right. Yeah. Now, again, I think this also appeals to the same dark, violent fantasies we have within ourselves right. that we're getting uh, fed when we go to a slasher movie. Yeah, but I the, feel like there's a slasher a, movie under, there's an innate understanding well, that I think, because it's horror this is wrong. Th- that it's wrong or and you that know. there's there's no like conversation about like Indiana Jones doesn't kill a bunch of people and then like after it's all done like his hand starts shaking cuz he's you know dealing with the incredible amount of adrenaline and he's like oh god i just killed so many people yeah yeah oh god am i a monster what did i do i mean i know it was me or them but my right. god like he never goes through he, he that machine guns a bunch of guys and then just says don't call me junior to his dad like he's not even paying attention to yeah, that yeah he just anymore. killed a bunch of, i mean yeah again they're nazis they're portrayed kind of cartoon like but because you're the hero in this situation 
You're it's down weird to, that you're, you're cavalier about you're the given, death. Yeah, you're given moral absolution immediately. One of the things I love, one of my favorite World War II movies is David Ayer's Fury because we see that even though the characters in Fury are pretty sure they're doing like the right thing, they're certainly on the right side of the war, mm. all of the death that they have seen, even from people that they've had to kill, has really fucked them up. Mm. When you talk to they're, the people, they're, they're damaged, yeah. hurt people. When you talk yeah. about people who have actually been to war and really experienced combat and human violence mm. on the level of many of our Vietnam veterans or World War II veterans, or there probably aren't many alive anymore, but World War One veterans, uh, uh, that lingers. Like mm. my grandfather was extremely changed as a human being after he was a flamethrower in mm. World War II, like. It doesn't matter that he was killing people who would have killed him. Hmm. I mean, it matters, but you know what I mean? It, it, it didn't it prevent him from experiencing the backlash from that. It didn't, yeah. him from having, it didn't prevent him from having PTSD just because he felt like he was in the right. Yeah. You still ended human lives in a horrific way. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's one I, thing if Jason I, Voorhees does it. It's another thing if yeah. a hero does it. But that being said... I'm not saying that I'm anti-James Bond movies or Indiana Jones movies, but I think the conversation around the violence is a little different. It, it definitely you is. Know. And I, I feel like it's... Both of these things are catering to, let's admit it, a, a kind of unhealthy fantasy. At but least something an immature all, one. But it is you know? something that's universally human. I think yeah. we all have these kind of dark death fantasies. Mm. It's a little less healthy, in my eye, f- to see a film that tells the, you that those fantasies are grand and heroic yeah. uh, rather than kind of kind of dark again, and scary. Again, I, I, healthy may or may not be the right word. I think mature is the mature. right word. I think mature, mature is, is definitely a, a good word. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. Uh, on, on one end you have the slasher films where you kind of acknowledge the, the death of it. On one, in one, you have sort of like James Bond characters or superheroes who just sort of cavalierly commit murder, but they're heroes. Yeah. And then I think maybe, and actually talking about not healthy, are the kind of power fantasies like you see in zombie movies, mm. where people take a lot of glee in committing acts of violence, yeah. and the audience is expected to relate to the glee in committing violence. Again, yeah, yeah. there's a certain detachment that comes from that. A lot of the ones, mm. a lot of the zombie movies where we take glee in it are like comedies, you know, like Zombieland, that kind of thing. Like, there's not all of them, mm. but a lot of a lot of them. Yeah. And I think the tone really matters. If the tone of a movie is cartoonish, I don't mind if it doesn't go much deeper than a Looney Tune. Uh-huh. Again, you're 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 setting a contract with the audience. You're saying this is what it's going to be like. Mm. If you tell me a character is heroic and then they don't behave heroically, that may or may not be a problem. That may or may not sink the film. Mm. But I think it's worth pointing out. I think it's worth having a conversation about. I think it's worth critiquing if it's relevant. Um, so in any case, the conversations that we have around violence in cinema, the danger, I think, is when we deal with some sort of moral absolutism. Violence in cinema is bad. Mm. Of course it's not. No, no, and, no, and, and, and I want to. I don't want to yeah. state categorically yeah. that I actually adore violence in movies. Yeah, uh, I, I like it when you know somebody gets their arm ripped in half lengthwise. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, you know, there's how often does that happen? I saw it in the movie Hardcore Henry, which is actually a piece of shit movie, but the <laughs> violence is exhilarating in that film. Okay, um, I, I think uh, you know the the Evil Dead remake isn't great, but the violence is amazing in that film. Somebody yeah. gets, I gets, think that movie is pretty great. Somebody gets yeah. chainsawed straight into the face, like nose first yeah. with the nose of the chainsaw while it's raining blood outside. That's, that's like heavy metal shit. I, I think, I, I think, love that. I kind think of you're stuff. underselling that remake. I think the remake's amazing, but anyway, <laughs> again, I think, 
I think the violence takes fair it enough. a long way. We, 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 we just, yeah. I just think it's a little better than you're saying. But fair okay. enough. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but yeah. So, so there's I'm definitely not, a place for violence. I'm not objecting to violence or even horrendous violence, amounts of violence in movies. It's the attitude about violence that I start to have kind of objections to, especially when they're more and more getting cavalier about how heroic it is. And mm-hmm. we're not addressing I think that in the movie at all. I think it's important. I think sometimes we're hesitant mm-hmm. about this to have serious conversations, even critical conversations about stuff we like. No, no, no. I, I liked Avengers Endgame. I do. I know it made it sound like when we only focused on our criticism of it, I sound really negative. Mm-hmm. That movie is great. I think that movie is like one of the most satisfying Hollywood blockbusters we've had in really long time i think it's amazing how well they took everything all of those movies laid down even the things that were kind of accidental and made them all wrap up and just paid everything off and it's a pretty damn great Mm. so like the four things i didn't like about it stand out a lot and i want to think and i think it's okay to have that conversation and not have it be about like this movie sucks no it doesn't suck Mm. i take issue with this part Mm -hmm. and let's talk about that for a while and that's the same thing with when we talk about Indiana Jones and its cavalier attitude towards violence, James Bond's cavalier attitude towards violence. Uh, the, the and, and yeah, I think it's okay to criticize slashers if you have a beef with the way that they handle violence. I'll happily have that conversation. Some slashers are more responsible about mm. their violence than others. That's fair. But they serve a function, and that function mm. is different than a James Bond movie, and how they handle violence is different. And I think you'll have a slightly different conversation whether you're pro or con. Mm. Or at least you should, other because they're very different movies. Yeah, well, I think it's especially important when we're talking about the biggest movie of all time. Yeah, uh, what it, what is that really saying yeah. to the billions of people that saw it? And yeah, it's, it's important to really delve. Yeah, uh, and, I agree. And if we find something unhealthy, let's focus on that and talk about it a little bit. The movies that reach the most people, I think, demand the most criticism. For sure. Not necessarily, and I don't mean criticism in terms of negative criticism. It can be positive criticism, but they demand the most. Uh, dissection uh, dissection mm. because they're reaching the most people a lot of people are simply absorbing them and we need to have a serious conversation about them mm. and much not, like and I, not not just why no. why it it struck the the gestalt or why we like it it's, this is um, one of the reasons why as we were saying earlier when there were movies in theaters mm. we've tended to focus on movies in theaters they were reaching the most people more people experienced them it was an important it was especially important to have a conversation about what those mm. movies were saying and how they went about their business. Hmm. Now that's less of an issue, and it's kind of a refreshing change of pace. But when those movies are out, we need to have a serious conversation about the movies that are out there and they're reaching the most people. Um, anyway, thank uh, you for thank you for thank you for the interesting letter. I think we had a, I think we had an interesting conversation about it. Yeah. I hope that addresses what you wanted us to address. Um, and again, I think your overall point is is fair, but I do think it's important to discuss why films do what they do, not just what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, that is We've Got Mail. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, you can always email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We try to read as many as we can every single week. Uh, if you want to interact with us more, we're on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Together we are at Critic Acclaim. You can also go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimed uh, network. You can subscribe for tons of exclusive content, like a lot. Like, I think we got like a few hundred hours of on there right by now it's like a lot oh for sure yeah. um so or, or at least over a hundred like mm. we 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 got content um but uh uh you can also leave comments we we post uh 
all of the episodes that are free to the public, like we've mm. got mail, critically acclaimed, episode zero, uh, we post those on the Patreon too. Feel free to leave a comment there or head on over to our Facebook page uh, for critically acclaimed and canceled too soon. There's an old cancel too soon page that we've more or less abandoned. Don't worry about that. There's a critically acclaimed cancel too soon page, which is pretty lively. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, by all means, feel free to reach out. Um, I said letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. I gave them Twitter. I gave them Patreon. (laughs) I think we're okay. So that's it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.